This audio is brought to you by muslimcentral.com. A'udhu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi alhamdulillahi rabbil alamin wal udwan ila ardh-dhalimin wal 'aqibatu lil muttaqin. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala 'abdika wa rasulika Muhammadin sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam tasliman kathira. Inshallah ta'ala tonight we continue in the story of Salman al-Farisi, Salman ibn al-Islam radiyallahu ta'ala anhu the incredible companion and his journey. And this part of the journey is the part that usually gets left out in the story of Salman. Meaning what? Typically, if you read the story of Salman al-Farisi radiallahu ta'ala anhu, it sort of stops when he meets the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and then that's it. That's the end of the story. But then you're left to wonder, well, what happened after he became Muslim? What happened after Khandaq? What happened with his life with the companions? What was his personality like? What was his interaction like with the companions of the Prophet What happens later on in history? Does he take part in the battles? And this part of his life is beautiful and deep, and I'd say underrated in the books, even in the classical books, by the way, when you read the story of Salman you don't get enough of this part of his story. But I wanted to start with something that uh, really is one of the most moving chapters of the book of Al-Fawa'id by Ibn Al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala. Now, of course, a few years ago, uh, Shaykh Yasin and I, when we did the last 10 night reflections, we reflected on the Fawa'id, the useful sayings of Imam Ibn Al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala. And then this year we did Ibn Al-Jawzi rahimahullah, Sayyidul Khatir. But Al-Fawa'id are the reflections of Ibn Al-Qayyim rahimahullah. And he has a chapter it's about page 60. The chapter is actually called Salman al-Farisi. It's a meditation on Salman al-Farisi radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And I absolutely love this. And it is so rich in Arabic, but I don't want to read the whole thing, but I kind of do want to read the whole thing. So I'm just going to read a couple of portions, inshallah, the beginning and the end of this chapter, inshallah ta'ala, in, uh, in Arabic. And then I'll translate it. He said, فَلَمَّا رَكِدَتِ الرِّيحُ إِذَا أَبُوْ طَالِبْ غَرِيقٌ فِي لُجَّةِ الْهَلَاكِ وَالْسَلْمَانُ عَلَى سَاحِلِ السَّلَامَةِ وَالْوَلِيدُ بْنُ الْمُغِيرَةِ يَقْدُمُ قَوْمَهُ فِي الْتِيهِ وَصُهَيْبٌ قَدْ قَدِمَ بِقَافِلَةِ الرُّومِ وَالنَّجَاشِ فِي أَرْضِ الْحَبَشَةِ يَقُولُ لَبَّيْكَ اللَّهُمَّ لَبَّيْكَ Rahimahullah ta'ala. Falamma rakidatirrih, which basically means when, I mean, if you want to translate what he's actually saying, once the dust settled, when the call of the Prophet came and the dust settled, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brought this call from the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Ida Abu Talib gharikun fi lujjatil halak. Suddenly we find that Abu Talib, the uncle of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, drowns in the sea of destruction. Why? Because he turned away from the call of the Prophet despite his assisting the Prophet in protecting him, he does not embrace the message of the Prophet And there you find Salman safe on the coast. So Abu Talib, the uncle of the Prophet drowns. Salman is safe on the coast. And Al-Walid ibn al-Mughira, who was the famous Arab uh, in, the, in, the, in, in Quraysh, someone who was known for his intelligence, someone who was known for his wealth, he precedes his people in destruction, in leading them astray. 
He was always looked at the person who was the progress of Mecca. He was the one that would spend his money, that would advance Mecca forward. And here he advances Mecca towards destruction. And there comes Suhaib from the caravan of the Romans. So Salman somehow from Persia safe on the coast, while the uncle of the Prophet drowns. Al-Walid ibn al-Mughira used to take the Meccans forward and represented progress in Mecca and wealth and prominence. Suddenly he is leading the people towards destruction. And Suhaib coming from the heart of the Roman Empire in their caravan, ready to embrace the Prophet He says all the way, And he said the entire time, there you have Najashi in Abyssinia, crying out, here I come, O oh Allah, here I come. Bilal Yunadi and Bilal the Abyssinia calling out, Prayer is better than sleep. Prayer is better than sleep. Abu Jahl and Abu Jahl, who was of course known as the father of wisdom, becomes the father of ignorance and is asleep amongst the disbelieving group. So it's a, it's a powerful contrast that he's giving basically to say, what excuse do you have? What excuse do you have to say that you should not be amongst the forerunners, amongst those who rush towards guidance when you hear this journey of Salman al-Farisi radiallahu ta'ala anhu and look at the way that these journeys match because the assumption when it comes to religious values and religious guidance is what? I just do what my parents taught me to do, right? And everyone kind of just goes with that. But look what Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah is saying and then towards the end of the chapter. He says, Ya Muhammad, anta turidu Aba Talib wa nahnu nuridu Salman. O Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, you wanted Abu Talib, but we wanted Salman. Meaning Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guides whom he wills. You wanted Abu Talib, but we wanted Salman. Abu Talib, idha su'ila an ismihi, qala abdu manaf. When Abu Talib would be asked what his name was, he would say, I'm from Abdul Manaf. And when he took pride, he took pride in his forefathers. And if you asked about money, then he would do what all the Meccans would do. They would count their camels. They would tell you how much they own. If you ask Salman, what's your name? He would say, Abdullah, the servant of Allah. And if you asked him, what's your lineage? He would say, I'm the son of Islam. And if you ask Salman, what is your wealth? He would say, my wealth is actually my poverty. And if you asked him about his, uh, his, his coffin, his hanut, if you asked him about his coffin, he would say, it's my masjid. And if you asked Salman anhu, kasbihi, if you asked him about what he has earned, he would say, As-sabr, I've earned patience. And if you asked him about his garments, he would say it is piety and humility. And if you asked him about his bed at night, he would say that my rest at night is in being awake with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if you asked him, what gives you something to boast about, or what is it that you boast about? He would say, when the Prophet ﷺ said, Salman is one of us, Salmanu minna. 
And if you asked him about what your objective is in life, what do you want from life? He would say, I want Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's face. I want Allah's pleasure. وَعَنْ سَيْرِهِ قَالَ إِلَى الْجَنَّةِ And if you asked him where he was going, he would say, I'm going to Jannah. وَعَنْ دَلِيلِهِ فِي الطَّرِيقِ قَالَ إِمَامُ الْخَلْقِ وَهَادِ الْأَئِمَّةِ And if you asked him about who guides you on this path, he would say, the Imam of all of Allah's creation and the guide of all leaders, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. As you can see, translation does not work here. I tried my best. But it's, uh, it's a chapter in Al-Fawa'id. It's one of the first chapters, in fact, page 60 where Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah just reflects on the amazing story of Salman al-Farisi radiallahu anhu. So before we go any further, what's the point here? What excuse do you have? What excuse do you have to not overcome your cultural restriction, to not overcome your social circle, to not overcome the norms that have been placed around you, to not overcome the standards that have been set for you? What excuse do you have if Salman radiallahu anhu found himself with the Prophet sallallahu in the trenches in Medina, being told, Salman minna ahl al-bayt, Salman is one of us, and he is from my family. And he came from Persia, where he was in the house of kufr, the house of disbelief, literally the house of kufr, in the center of the Persian empire. Where we left off in part one was this incident of Salman and the Khandaq, Salman anhu and the trench, where it is his suggestion that the Prophet accepts and the Messenger وسلم, and the companions start to build away this trench. And Salman عنه, narrates in an authentic hadith his experience with the Prophet وسلم, in the trench. Salman did not witness Badr or Uhud. Salman is now in his first battle and he's right next to the Prophet وسلم, and the Prophet وسلم, dug the equivalent of 10 men by himself. Rasulullah did not say, good idea Salman, now all of you do your thing. The Prophet dug more than anyone else dug and he starved more than anyone else starved. Similar to how when the Messenger said, A'inu akhakum, help your brother. When Salman anhu needed the palm trees, he himself dug all 300 whole, or he himself planted all 300 trees. Here, the description of the Prophet is he's covered in mud. He has stones tied to his stomach. He eats less than everyone else. He does more than everyone else, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And Salman radiallahu anhu said, I'm digging and I'm next to the messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And I started to struggle with this huge stone that I couldn't get past with my axe. So the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, says to Salman, Ya Salman, give me the axe. So Salman anhu says, I hand it to the Prophet And Rasulullah strikes that stone and he recites, Tammat kalimatu rabbika sidqan wa adlan la mubaddila li kalimatihi wa huwa samiyun alim. The word of your Lord has been fulfilled in truth and in justice. None can change his words and he is the all-hearing and the all-knowing from Surah An-Nisa. Salman anhu said that when he struck the stone, a light appeared from it. And he said the Messenger وسلم, struck again, and he recited the same ayah, And he said another light came out of it, and the Prophet وسلم, struck it a third time, and it completely came apart, and it was all light coming out of it. And he recited the ayah, 
So he said, I said to the Prophet Rasulullah, May my father and ma- mother be sacrificed for you, O Messenger of Allah. What is it that I am seeing? This light that is coming from the stone as you strike it. The Prophet is surprised that Salman sees it. He says, You mean you see it too, O Salman? Why? Because the Prophet at times saw things that the companions did not see. And so when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decided to unlock some of what the Prophet was seeing to the companions around, that was a representation of the status of that companion. Right? If you watched Angels season two, sometimes the Prophet could be sitting with two companions, only one of them sees Jibreel and not the other. That's a sign of the status of that Sahabi alongside the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So the Prophet says, Ya Salman, you see it as well? Salman anhu says, Yes, I swear by the one who sent you in truth. So the Prophet said, at the first strike, keep in mind here, they're in a trench trying to ward off a genocide. Right? This is an attempted wiping out of the Muslims once and for all. And this is what Allah shows the Prophet ﷺ. He says, the first time I saw it, O Salman, رُفِعَتْ لِي مَدَائِنُ كِسْرَى وَمَا حَوْلَهَا The palaces of Kisra, the emperor of Persia, were raised up in front of me and everything around it. Meaning I saw the light of Islam reaching Persia. So the Prophet ﷺ is with the companions and they're afraid that they're not going to exist in a few days, right? I mean, from a physical perspective, that this is the end of Islam. That's what the, the intentions are of the Meccans. And the Prophet ﷺ is saying, with the first strike, Allah showed me the palaces of Kisra, Madainu Kisra, and everything that is around it. And the Prophet said, and there were many other things that I saw with my eyes. And the second time, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala showed me the palaces of Qaisar, Haraqal, and everything that is around it, the emperor of Rome, and what is around him. And the third time, Allah showed me the palaces of Habasha and Yemen, Abyssinia and Yemen, Islam reaching Yemen as well. And in one narration, the Prophet said, Yemen and Asham. So the, the point is that the Prophet basically from that ditch that they're constructing is seeing the light of Islam reaching the entire known world at the time, right? So not only are we not going to be wiped out, Allah is sending the Prophet a message and the companions a message that you will come out of this dark trench and the light of Islam will spread to the entire world. The Sahaba that heard the Prophet say that, they said to the Prophet Ya Rasulullah, make dua that Allah make us amongst those that spread Islam to these places. And the Prophet made dua for that group of companions. So Salman is with the Prophet Where did Salman come from? Persia, (laughs) right? The palace of Persia or a palace in Persia. And he's now in a trench with the Prophet at the suggestion of Salman, the trench that they constructed, and the Prophet seized the most prized city of that empire with his eyes. And Salman sees that light. And the Prophet makes dua that Salman anhu would be amongst those upon whose hands that light 
would spread. SubhanAllah, that is how you start this particular incidence. This is the first mashhad, the first time Salman who witnesses one of these incidents alongside the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Salman of course goes on after this incident because it's now that he's really integrated into society. He's integrated into the Sahaba and Salman gains an identity and his identity is beautiful. He's Salman ibn al-Islam. He's Salman, the son of Islam. Salman ibn al-Islam. I'm not from the Muhajireen technically. I'm not from the Ansar. I'm not from Mecca. I'm not from Medina. And when he's asked who his father is, he says al-Islam. He has no tribal claim, but he is elevated amongst the companions because of his struggle and because of his knowledge. And he had this line of poetry that he used to say, he said, Abil Islam la abali siwahu, tamimi. said, My father is Islam. I have no other father but Islam. Once they start to boast about Qais and Tamim, when they start to boast about their tribal superiority, I simply say, I am from Islam. And I'm happy with that. Salman from Islam, where are you from? Jannah. <laughs> That's what I want. That's the easiest way for him to respond. And that's something that he sincerely means, and that's what Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah was praising about Salman al-Farisi radiallahu ta'ala anhu, that Salman basically gives you no excuse in your own journey to truth, because he did everything that he possibly could, and he faced every difficulty that you possibly could face in attaining that truth and being with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Abu Huraira radiallahu ta'ala anhu says that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam sitting with the Sahaba when Surah Al-Jum'ah was revealed to him. And when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَآخَرُونَ مِنْهُمْ لَمَّا يَلْحَقُوا بِهِمْ Others amongst them who have not yet joined them. Others amongst them who have not yet joined them. Meaning the Muslims who have not yet joined them. The descendants who are to come. That one of the Sahaba asked the Prophet ﷺ, Ya Rasulullah, who is this about? And the Prophet ﷺ was silent. And he said again, Ya Rasulullah, who is this about? And the Prophet was silent. And then he asked a third time, and he said the Prophet put his hands on the shoulder of Salman al-Farisi and he said, it is Salman and his descendants. And he said, even if Iman was in the stars, a man from amongst these people, from amongst these descendants would reach up to attain it. Would reach up to attain it. Meaning what? that Salman anhu and his descendants who are far away, they don't share anything in common with us in terms of deen or culture or language even. But they will find faith and they will be the ones who will become the sustainers and become the stewards of this faith. In one narration, وَإِن تَتَوَلَّوْ يَسْتَبْدِلْ قَوْمًا غَيْرَكُمْ When Allah says, if you turn away, Allah will replace you with someone else. The Prophet pointed to Salman and said, this is Salman and his descendants. Meaning, this is not a religion that depends upon the Arabs. This is not a religion that depends upon any particular culture. This is not a religion that depends on an empire. This is not a religion that belongs to a power class. And if that power class politically crumbles, the religion dies as well. This is a religion that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will spread through the hearts of those who seek guidance and will stop at nothing to get it. 
And Al-Hafid ibn Hajar rahimahullah ta'ala, he comments on this narration with Salman radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And he, he says, subhanAllah, that the Prophet did not just credit Salman radiallahu anhu with his own Islam and with the Islam of the Persians. But what the Prophet was talking about were non-Arabs, non-Arabs, who would go on to become the bulk of the scholars of this religion. Whether you talk about the Imm al-Arba' or you talk about the collectors of hadith or many of the famous scholars, right? They were not Arabs and that's part of the beauty of Islam is that it immediately beca it became universal. In the very next generation of the tabi'een, many of the scholars that took it forward and became the chief muftis of their land were not Arabs anymore. And he, ref he referred to Imam Muhanifa rahimallah, who of course Imam Muhanifa was a Persian as well, the Imam who reached the stars. Why? Because the Prophet said the descendants of these people, of Salman anhu, would not stop even if they had to go up to the skies and reach into the stars to find this deen, they would do so. So this was not about the Persians, this is not about a particular group of people. This was about sincere people who would strive for this religion and who would find it no matter what and who would do everything that they possibly could in order to attain it. So what happens? Hassan al-Basri, rahimahullah, Mujahid, rahimahullah, Sa'id ibn Jubair, Abu Hanifa, Imam Bukhari, Imam al-Tirmidhi, all of these people who were not Arabs, but who became the greatest scholars and the descendants of this religion. And all of that is the sadaqah jariyah of Salman radiallahu ta'ala anhu. All of that is the continuous charity of Salman radiallahu ta'ala anhu. So what's Salman's sort of uh, place amongst the companions? Number one, when the Prophet said, Salmanu minna ahl al-bayt, Salman's one of us, he's from my household, it wasn't just like a nice thing to say at the moment. The Prophet kept Salman close to him, close to him, to where Salman would be with him in his home frequently. Not all of the companions had access to the home of the Prophet on a regular basis. Salman was one of those that Ibn Athir mentions. There's a narration from Aisha radiallahu anha always entering into the house of the Prophet and sitting with the Prophet in his alone time. So he's in the inner circle of the Prophet And one of the gems of that, of course, is that he went from keeping the fire of the Majus in his, fire, in his father's home to now being in the household of the Prophet while Qur'an was being revealed to the Prophet Salman was there when suwar, when surahs were revealed to the Prophet As we said, Abu Huraira referred to him as Abu al-Kitabain, the father of the Bible and the father of the Qur'an in the sense that he possessed a rare scholarship of the three major, well, the four major religions, but the three major scriptures at the time. He possessed a rare scholarship in that he was a scholar of Zoroastrianism, he was a scholar of Judaism, a scholar of Christianity, and now a scholar of Islam by the testimony of multiple companions. He immediately became a scholar amongst the Muslims as well. Uh, he knew how to speak all of the languages of the books and he knew all of the signs of the coming of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He translated for the Prophet Sallallahu the Qur'an uh, into uh, Persian. Uh, and he's the first person, as Imam Nawawi Rahimahullah says, to do so. Now what is his personality like? And this is actually really important uh, to sort of get an idea of him. I mean, this man that's coming to live amongst the Sahaba in this regard. Salman 
who knows all of this stuff, would barely open his mouth. Can you imagine that? Like you possess all this knowledge, and Salman whose reputation is what? Silence. He was a very quiet man. Ali referred to him as the Luqman of this Ummah. He's the Luqman al-Hakim of this Ummah. Why? Because Luqman al-Hakim barely spoke. But when he spoke, it was wisdom. And half of wisdom is practicing silence. So when you say something, it means something. If you talk all the time, then people know that you're just going to keep running your mouth. Your, your words possess very little meaning, right? So that's the guy who's talking a lot right now, right? You know? But wisdom is in practicing silence and then being very intentional about what you say, very thoughtful about what you say, not always running your mouth. Salman anhu barely would open his mouth. And every time he spoke, everybody turned to him. You know, think about an extremely wise person. As soon as they start to speak, everyone's like, whoa, he's talking. She's talking now, let's pay attention. That was Salman radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Extremely long periods of silence, extremely wise and thoughtful words when he eventually would open his mouth. And there's actually a narration that someone came to him and said to him, Awsani, give me advice. So he told him, La tatakallam, don't talk. So he said, Awsani, give me advice. He said, La tatakallam, don't talk. And he said, Awsani, he said, didn't I tell you, stop talking? <laughs> like this is the advice, you talk too much. Learn to practice silence. Because when you're silent, you have more time to receive and to ponder and to be perceptive, less sins to corrupt the internal perception as well. When you talk all the time, you're blurting out and you're blurting out sins and you're thinking less and you're corrupting your teskiyah because you're likely sinning when you talk too much. So Salman anhu's advice was quiet. But subhanAllah, the description of Salman in this regard is that he was quiet, but you knew he was thinking about something. Okay? And this was one of the, descri the descriptions of the Prophet Da'imul Fikra. Uh, you know, when you look at someone who's quiet, and they look like they're just kind of aloof and staring around, Salman anhu was that person who you could look at when he was quiet, and you knew that there was some deep stuff going on in his head right now. Do any of you know what I'm talking about? Like if you see someone who you know is in deep thought versus someone who's completely aloof, right? Like you looked at Salman and you're like, I wonder what's in that library right now. Because he was so perceptive And some of the scholars mentioned, and not to psychoanalyze Salman but he's been alone his whole life. He was alone in front of the fire, right? I mean, he was literally caretaking for the fire for his entire childhood. And then he was alone as a monk. He's in the church, and he's going from church to church, serving priest and priest, right? Learning the religion of Ibrahim in the purest manifestation that exists at the time. And then he's alone in slavery, passed from owner to owner to owner to owner. He doesn't have a social circle, right? He travels the world alone. So Salman spent his entire life. I mean, realize again, when he got to Medina, by the time he got to Medina, He's already in his 50s. He's not a young man, right? He's not a youth. He's already had his whole life where he's been alone. 
Salman does not have best friends. Salman does not even have family. He doesn't have anyone around him. So he had to learn. I mean, he's living a life of being estranged. Much of it solitary confinement. Much of it is being around people who are not like him. Right? So when he joins the Sahaba, Salman anhu sort of maintains that same type of stature and posture, which is one of silence, perception, worship, deep ibadah. And he used to stand and he would pray at night. And subhanAllah, we, we have the, uh, the narration, uh, which is a very powerful narration because we already talked about some narrations that have to do with him. <clears throat> but he was with the Prophet ﷺ and he heard the Prophet ﷺ recite, وَإِنَّ جَهَنَّمَ لَمَوْعِدُهُمْ أَجْمَعِينَ That verily, hellfire is, is promised for them all. Surah Al-Hijr, verse 43. Salman anhu went quiet and he, I mean, he actually was not seen for some days and he was very scared. He was in panic. So the Prophet ﷺ asked about Salman anhu, where did he go? He started to cry, which was not unusual for Salman anhu. And the Prophet ﷺ asked for him, so they found Salman anhu days later and they brought him to the Prophet ﷺ. And the Prophet ﷺ asked him, Salman, what happened? He said, Ya Rasulullah, that verily hellfire, this verse was revealed that verily hellfire is promised for them, or hellfire is where they will go. And he said, Like, I swear by the one who sent you with the truth, this tore my heart. Like, what do I do then? فَأَنزَلَ اللَّهُ تَعَالَىٰ إِنَّ الْمُتَّقِينَ فِي ظِلَالٍ وَعْيُونَ so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed that verily the pious will be sitting with vast shade and springs, comforting the heart of Salman anhu and those who are like Salman anhu, that hellfire is promised for the wicked. It is not promised for the righteous, like Salman al-Farisi anhu. Now, an incident that happens with him as well, and this is probably the most famous incident with Salman anhu, is who the Prophet ﷺ puts him with uh, in the mu'akha, in the pairing off of the Ansar and the Muhajireen. Salman anhu, when he's freed from slavery, he's going to need a place to stay and he's going to get on his feet. And Salman, between the two groups of Muhajireen and Ansar, of the migrants and the Ansar, those that are receiving them, he falls into the group of the Muhajireen, right? He made hijrah, he migrated not from Mecca, but he migrated from Persia. And the Prophet ﷺ pairs him off with Abu Darda radiallahu ta'ala Abu Darda is who we're going to talk about next week. All right? Abu Darda al-Ansari radiallahu ta'ala And Abu Darda is a scholar amongst the Ansar. And this is from the wisdom of the Prophet ﷺ that he put a scholar in the house of a scholar. He, puts, he put a abid, a worshipper, in the house of a worshipper. So Salman anhu is a worshipper. Abu Darda is a worshipper. Abu Darda is quickly gaining prominence as a mufti amongst the companions. One of the closest to the Prophet and someone who immediately stands out in terms of his knowledge. And Salman anhu is going to go live with Abu Darda anhu. Now, this is subhanAllah one of the most profound narrations because Salman has seen righteous people 
and he has seen extremism and he has seen corruption. Extremism here, not in the sense of violence. Extremism at tatarruf or al-ghulu fiddin, people that go too far with the religion. He's seen that practice in different manifestations and he's seen corruption and fasad as well. So he's seen these different types of religious practice, right? So this is really going to be his exposure, his first exposure to a companion of the Prophet who's noted for his religiosity. Salman who moves in, that's pretty intimidating, right? Like you got to host Salman in your house. Salman who moves in, and Abu Darda was uh, fasting all the time, praying all the time, reading all the time, to a point that he's neglectful of his household. Okay? So Salman one day he asks, this is in the very beginning, he sees Umm Darda, and this is before the ayat of hijab were revealed. So he sees Umm Darda in clothing, her home clothing, of course modesty, but not with the full hijab, and he sees the patches, and he sees her in a bad situation, and he says to Umm Darda, what is this? Mahada. So she says, she doesn't attack Abu Darda, she says, your brother Abu Darda has no need for this world. He just doesn't care about dunya, like this guy is focused on the akhirah. So she says it in a, praise, in a praising fashion, but at the same time, Salman recognizes the neglect of the household and he, he doesn't like it. So Abu Darda, what would he do? He, he was still a really good host in that he would prepare the lunch, have the lunch served to Salman, and he wasn't eating because he was fasting. So Abu Darda anhu was fasting and he brings the food to Salman. Salman anhu says, eat with me. Abu Darda says, inni sa'im, I'm fasting. Salman anhu says, aqsamtu alayka an ta'kul. I swear by Allah that I'm taking an oath upon you, you will eat with me. The right of the guest on the host. You break your fast, it's a voluntary fast. Sit down and eat with me. So he forces Abu Darda to break his fast. And then at night time, Abu Darda anhu, would immediately start with Qiyam. Like he wouldn't go be with his spouse and then come out at some point and start praying. He immediately stands up to pray at night. So Salman anhu goes to Abu Darda as he's about to start praying and he says, go to sleep. <laughs> You know, some guest you are, right? Like you come into my house and tell me when to eat and when to sleep and go to sleep. And Abu Darda says, Usalli. He said, no, no, go to sleep. And Abu Darda said, I want to pray. He said, go to sleep and we can pray later. Go to sleep. So he insists upon Abu Darda and so Abu Darda just goes to sleep. And then he wakes up Abu Darda in the last third of the night. And he says, let's pray. So they pray together. And then Salman radiallahu anhu says to Abu Darda radiallahu anhu, Ya Abu Darda, inna li nafsika alayka haqqa, wa li ahlika alayka haqqa, wa li rabbika alayka haqqa. Listen, yourself has a right upon you, your family has a right upon you, your Lord has a right upon you. Fa'a'fi kulladhi haqqin haqqa. Give every one of those things their due right. You can't do this. This isn't balanced, this isn't proportionate. You have to give yourself a right, you have to give your family a right, and of course, give your Lord his right. And by the way, when you serve yourself for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, meaning you 
you discipline the self, you, you treat the amana that Allah has given you of yourself well, that's ibadah. And when you serve your family, that's ibadah too, right? But you've got to balance this all out. So Salman radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he goes to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. I'm sorry, Abu Darda radiallahu anhu goes to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Abu Darda is like, this guest, problem, right? So he says to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Ya Rasulullah, you put Salman in my house, and Salman's making me break my fast, and he's making me sleep at night, and he said to me that your Lord has a right upon you, your family has a right upon you, yourself has a right upon you. Abu Darda thinks the Prophet is going to call Salman and say, you know, maybe in your old religion, but these are my companions, this is how they act. The Prophet looks Abu Darda in the eye and says, Sadaqa Salman, Sadaqa Salman, Sadaqa Salman. Salman afqahu mink. Salman has told the truth, Salman has told the truth, Salman has told the truth. And by the way, Salman has better religious understanding than you do. SubhanAllah. We'll talk about Abu Darda next week. We'll redeem him next week, inshallah. But like this was so profound. And some of the scholars reflecting on this, they said Salman hated, hated religious extremism. Again, extremism in the sense of al-ghulu, people going overboard. He hated that disproportionality because he saw it. He's seen it practice and he didn't want to see that in Islam. He knew that the spirit of the, of, of the message of the Messenger وسلم, was more wholesome than that. So even though Abu Darda had been with the Prophet for a longer time, Salman understood, understood the thrust of the shara, the thrust of the legislation, even though he had less time technically uh, studying it alongside uh, the Prophet So this is one of the most famous incidents of Salman anhu with the Prophet uh, and with the companions. Other than that, there isn't much narrated about Salman anhu except his extreme silence and the way that he would worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. One of the famous narrations is in Fatah Mecca, the conquest of Mecca. And in the conquest of Mecca, and this is in Bukhari, Abu Sufyan walks past Salman, Suhaib, and Bilal. What a sight, right? Salman, Suhaib, and Bilal walking together. <laughs> that shows you the beauty of the Ummah right away. Now, there were some hurt feelings, right? Like, they fought Abu Sufyan. They fought Khalid ibn al-Walid, right? There was, there's some a bitter history here, right? And they don't have the old tribal connections that some of the Muslims have because they're cousins and uncles and, and friends, right? So Salman, Suhaib, and Bilal are walking past Abu Sufyan and they say to Abu Sufyan, Wallahi ma akhadat suyufullahi min unuqi aduwillahi ma'akhadaha. Like you're lucky the swords of Allah did not reach the neck of the enemy of Allah. So they said something to him. They said these words to Abu Sufyan, right? Abu Sufyan, when he uh, heard that, he was upset with it. Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu, this is Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he's thinking about the da'wah part of this. He says, Are you saying this to the elder of Quraysh? Come on, like, He's saying to Bilal and Suhaib and Salman that not now, like we've got to work this out. This shows you again the human side of things. The Prophet of course, when he came into Mecca, what did the Prophet do? 
He honored Abu Sufyan as a means of winning his heart over. And look what happened as a result of that. Abu Sufyan was in his ranks after that and was with the Prophet in the battlefield and doesn't leave his side after that. So the Prophet knew the psychology of these people and winning them over and, and really showing them that you're not going to be belittled and degraded now that you are in Islam. So Abu Bakr has a point. He's saying, look, there's no need for you to say that to him. I know that there's a history, but you shouldn't have said that to him. Abu Bakr felt like he maybe offended Bilal, Suhaib, and Salman. So he came to the Prophet and he told the Prophet what happened. The Prophet said, Ya Abu Bakr, Oh Abu Bakr, you might have upset them, those three. You might have made them angry. And if you did that, then you would have upset your Lord. So Abu Bakr is a Siddiq. This is never about himself. So he goes to Suhaib, Salman, and Bilal. And he says, Ya Ikhwata, oh my brothers, are you upset with me? Aghadabtum, are you upset with me? And they said, La, yaghfir Allahu lak. They said, No, oh our brother, may Allah forgive you. Like Suhaib, Salman, and Bilal are like, No, of course, Abu Bakr, we're not mad at you. He said, Alhamdulillah. But the point is, is that the Prophet was showing the status of these people. That yes, even if maybe that wasn't the best thing to say when the Prophet is saying whoever enters into the house of Abu Sufyan is safe and the Prophet is trying to assure the, the skeptical Meccans that this isn't going to be a revenge fest. But even then, the Prophet is upholding the sanctity of uh, these people. When Rasulullah passes away, Abu Bakr al-Siddiq uh, makes him uh, a general in the army, Salman anhu, a general in the army, and Salman anhu, generally speaking at this point still assumes a place of obscurity amongst the people, a place of contemplation. And one of the incidents that's narrated is that a man came into Medina at the time and he saw Salman anhu. He brought some, some, some fodder with uh, dirham and then he looked around to see who's going to carry his stuff for him. So he saw Salman anhu, and because of the nature of the way Salman would carry himself in the souq, you would have thought that he was a poor man. So he said to Salman, hey, you know, come, carry my stuff for me. And here's a dirham. Salman anhu, what does he do? He carries the man's stuff. So Salman is walking with this man carrying his stuff and people are all rushing towards him and they're saying, Nahminu anke ya Aba Abdullah, we'll carry your stuff for you, we'll carry your stuff for you, we'll carry your stuff for you. And Salman anhu is saying, No, leave me alone, leave me alone, I've got it, I've got it, I've got it. So the man who asked Salman to carry his stuff, he's like, Who is this guy? Right? Thought he was some Persian slave hanging out, you know, where is who is this guy? فَقَالُوا هَذَا Salman, صَاحِبُ Rasulillah. This is Salman, the great companion of the Prophet. And so he gets scared. He says, oh Salman, I didn't know who you were. I didn't know who you were. And Salman anhu refuses to let go of his stuff until he takes the man to his place and gives the man his stuff and he assumes his humility. So if you saw Salman anhu walking around Medina, you really would not assume much of him because he kept himself very humble and very pious. Salman anhu narrates when Abu Bakr as-Siddiq was then dying, and there's a common theme here with the type of advice that he's going to get from the companions. He says, 
that I came to Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala anhu when he was dying. فَبَكَى عِنْدَ رَأْسِهِ radiallahu ta'ala anhu So Salman radiallahu anhu came and he sat next to his head and Salman radiallahu anhu started to cry. And he said, يَا خَلِيفَةَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ أَوْصِنِي Salman says to Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala anhu O Khalifa of the Messenger of Allah, give me advice. So Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu says to him, Inna Allah tabaraka wa ta'ala fatihun alaykum dunya Allah is going to open the treasures of this world to you. I mean, the treasures of this world are going to be given to you. فَلَا تَأْخُذُنَّ مِنْهَا إِلَّا بَلَاغًا Don't take from it except what you need. وَاعْلَمْ أَنَّ مَنْ صَلَّى صَلَاةَ الصُّبْحِ فَهُوَ فِي ذِمَّةِ اللَّهِ And know that the one who prays Fajr is under the protection of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So do not. فَلَا تَخْفِرَنَّ اللَّهَ عَزَّ وَجَلَّ فِي ذِمَّتِهِ فَيَكُبَّكَ اللَّهُ عَلَى وَجْهِكَ فِي النَّارِ Do not abandon the protection of Allah upon you and then you end up falling into the hellfire on your face. So hold on to your Salah. Hold on to your Fajr and presumably Fajr with all of its rights. Right? Hold on to your Salah properly and you will be in the protection of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala every day. Do not relinquish that protection from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and then you end up face first in the fire. So Salman's advice from Abu Bakr as-Siddiq is that Islam is going to spread and a lot is going to come to you. Don't be deceived by this dunya. Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu had a great liking towards Salman radiallahu anhu. And so he appoints him at some point a general, at some point an advisor, at some point an advisor uh, to the Persians as well. But Salman occupies a much more prominent place. And of course, the Khilaf of Umar was much longer than the Khilaf of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala anhu. So Salman is one of the, the closest people to Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And he's also his neighbor, by the way. Uh, even if you look at the, uh, the, the old homes of the Sahaba in Medina, Salman radiallahu anhu is basically the neighbor of Umar ibn Khattab so they're very, very close. And an incident happens in the Khilaf of Umar that's narrated in the books of law because there is something profound about it. So Ibn al-Qayyim, of course, dedicates a section of I'lam al-Muwaqqa'een to this, where Salman essentially is going to challenge Umar bin Khattab. And Umar comes out and he says to the people, listen and obey. Hear and obey. Basically addressing the people that I'm about to give you something and I need you to listen and accept the following orders, which was commonplace of the Khalifa to address the people. Salman radiallahu ta'ala anhu stands up and he says, Wallahi la nasma' wa la nuti'. I swear by Allah we will not listen to you nor will we obey you. Now, Umar radiallahu anhu, if he was a tyrant, he would have said, what? Take him out. Umar radiallahu anhu was also a much bigger that man than him. He could have done something. He could have made an example out of him. He could have said something to him. Umar radiallahu anhu's answer was what? Why? <laughs> Why are you saying that to me? Why are you saying we won't hear you and obey you? Think about subhanAllah how profound that is. The Khalifa having this conversation with this strange man, right? In, in, in terms of lineage and prominence. Why? And he says to Umar al-Khattab when you received cloth, that there was some cloth that came to you and you gave a share to the entire ummah, you gave a piece of that cloth to everyone, 
You took two for yourself and you gave one to everyone else. Can you imagine if that was the complaint we had about our leaders today in the Muslim world? Like, hey, I want you to listen to me. You know, when this money came in, you took double and then you gave everybody else just one share. Ittaqillah, fear Allah. Right? Like, subhanAllah, that shows you the world and the culture that they lived in in this regard. Umar ibn Khattab does not say to him, like, big deal, I'm the Khalifa, I took two pieces and you have one, I kind of deserve that, and I live my life in a pretty simple way. Umar says to him, or he, rather he says to his son Abdullah ibn Umar, he says, Abdullah, stand up and explain to him the situation. So Abdullah stands up and says that my father is a really tall man. So because one cloth would not cover him, I gave him my share, and then he had the two cloths stitched together, and that's what he has on right now. So he actually didn't take two shares. He just took my share, his son, and stitched them together because the piece of cloth wouldn't have fit him as it was. Salman says, now we'll listen to you and obey you. And he sits back down, and Umar continues with the address. What a world, subhanAllah, what a culture, what type of companions and what type of people these were. And if you think about this, think about when Salman anhu was in Syria and he stood up in Syria challenging the people. Salman anhu was not one to be quiet when he saw what he perceived as dhulm, which is also profound. When he saw injustice, what he perceived to be an injustice, he spoke, which is the perfection of that man's wisdom. He wasn't always running his mouth about things, but when he spoke, it was for a reason. And in that situation, because he perceived an injustice, and even if it was from Amir al-Mu'mineen, Umar al-Khattab anhu, you need to explain this injustice. What is it that we are seeing? Now what happens with Salman anhu after that? And I'll try not to go too much longer because I know we have uh, Salatul uh, Isha uh, that will push back just a little bit. The Prophet wasallam when he was sending letters to the leaders of the world. You have the famous incident after Hudaybiyah, when the Prophet ﷺ could now send ambassadors to world leaders where he sent Abu Sufyan to Haraqil, to the leader of the Romans. Right, a very famous narration between Abu Sufyan and Haraqil. And Haraqil basically knew it was the truth, but he concealed it because he didn't want to lose his kingdom, all right? So some leaders responded to the Prophet ﷺ aggressively. Some leaders responded to the Prophet ﷺ and the majority would just, you know, no response at all. And of course, some like in Najashi, the very few and the leader of Bahrain at the time, some of them responded with something favorable to the Prophet ﷺ. When it came to Kisra, Kisra, the leader of the Persians at the time, when they say Baytu Kisra, Kisra of course is a title, Khosro, uh, the second, who's the current leader at that time, Khosra the second, was the exact same age as the Prophet and Salman al-Farisi And this was, this man was considered the most successful leader of the Persians, a very strong man, someone who was deemed to be fit to basically put the Romans to end once and for, to, to put them uh, to, to rest once and for all, that he was going to end the Roman Empire. Remember this war between the Romans and the Persians was over 700 years. Kisra, this man was a military genius, or so he was perceived to be that way, and was a very arrogant man. They talk about in the history books his palaces being the most lavish palaces in the world at the time. Uh, 
you know, and all sorts of other wealth and, and, and you know, thousands of servants and slaves that he had around him. The man was a pompous ruler, but a military genius and a very arrogant man. And again, he basically had his foot on the neck of the Romans. That's why you have Surah Rum. He took the cross, the, the cross from Jerusalem and desecrated it. Massacres 90,000 people in Jerusalem. The man had no mercy with his adversaries. So he's an arrogant person. The Prophet wrote a letter to him inviting him to Islam after Hudaybiyah. And some of the scholars, though we don't have a sanad, a chain to actually uh, verify this for sure, but it could be that Salman himself might have wrote that letter. Why? Because Salman is the Persian. So the letter is going out in the language of that man. And the Prophet sends Abdullah ibn Hudhafa to Kisra to deliver the letter. The letter reads, Min Muhammad, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, ila Kisra Adim al-Furs. From Muhammad, the Messenger of Allah, to Kisra, the Great One of Persia. And it says, As-salamu ala man al-huda, peace be unto those who accept rightful guidance. Aslim, taslim, accept Islam, and you will be given salam, you'll be given peace. Yu'tik Allahu ajraka marratayn. Allah will give you the reward twice your own Islam and the reward of your people. And if you turn away, then you'll have your own sin and the sin of your people as well. Kisra, in his pettiness, and some of you have heard me speak about this story before, so you might remember what upset him so much. Anyone remember? He said, Bada bi ismihi, qabla ismi. How dare he start with his name on the letter before my name? Min Muhammad, like, Next time you write a to and from to somebody, make sure you, you might be writing to a Kisra-like figure, right? So make sure you put the to before the from, right? How dare he put his name on top of my name? It's so respectful. Min Muhammad Rasulullah from the Prophet Muhammad the Messenger of Allah to Kisra, the leader of the Persians. So he tears the letter up, throws it at Abdullah ibn Hudhafa, threatens him, and says, I'm coming after the one who sent you with this letter. You let him know I'm after him that I'm going to come, basically cut his head off. And he actually appoints Ba'dan, who was the governor of Yemen. Yemen was a client kingdom of the Persians. He says, send me your nastiest two hitmen to Medina and let them go make an example out of that person who claims to be a messenger of Allah in the desert over there amongst the Arabs. Now, when Abdullah ibn Hudhafa comes back to the Prophet tells him what happened, that he tore the letter up and threw it at him, the Prophet responded, mulkahu. May Allah tear up his kingdom as he tore up the letter. So what ends up happening? SubhanAllah, at that point, by the time the hitmen came to Medina, the Prophet had them uh, taken and brought to the Prophet and the Prophet recognized them. Jibreel had informed him about the plot of these two men. And the Prophet told them that the man who sent you has already been killed. And the Prophet said, go back to Ba'dan, the, the Yemeni governor, and tell him that I am a prophet of Allah. And that one day, Islam will reach Yemen. Let him precede Islam reaching Yemen by becoming Muslim first. And he'll have the reward of his people as well. Now, by the time the hitmen get back to Medina, they indeed found out that Kisra had been killed. 
And Dadan said, all right, I'm accepting Islam. So he actually responded to the message of the Prophet ﷺ. Now what happened? Did the Prophet ﷺ send some hitmen to Persia to take uh, Kisra out? No. SubhanAllah, this kingdom that had been stable for decades suddenly starts to go through all sorts of turmoil. Turmoil. His own son kills him. And then this, his daughter kills his son. And then his daughter's daughter kills her and takes the kingdom. When the Prophet said, Allahu Mulka, may Allah tear up his kingdom, that meant rebellion and coup, rebellion and coup, rebellion and coup. Every brother and sister and grandson and granddaughter held that kingdom at some point, within a decade all of a sudden. The stable kingdom, the Persian Empire falls apart. And now you have the current leader of Persia. Umar ibn Khattab and the Persians are at war. Umar in this battle with the Persians, he sends Sa'id ibn Abi Waqqas as the number one, Salman al-Farisi as the number two. So now you have Salman, the Persian man, and you have the Persian Empire on the other side. And of course, these were some of the most epic battles that exist in the history of Islam between the Persian Empire, which was hostile and nasty, used elephants and all types of weapons and all types of things, uh, tactics, and inflicted heavy casualties on anyone that they were hostile towards. But now you have Sa'ad and Salman al-Farisi and they have penetrated deep into the Persian Empire and they are literally right in front of the Tigris River. And if you look at a map, the Tigris River is basically a khandaq. It's basically a, a natural trench because it encircles the Mada'an, it encircles the main city where the palace of Kisra is, which is in Iraq, by the way, because Iraq was part of the Persian Empire. And Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas and Salman anhu arrive with the Muslim army in front of the Tigris River. And Sa'ad radiallahu anhu says, Hasbuna Allah wa ni'mal wakil, wallahi layansuranna Allah waliya, wala yuzhiranna Allah deena. He said, I swear by Allah that Allah will give victory to his loving servants, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make victory his will, will make victorious his religion, and Allah will defeat his enemies. So long as we don't have sins or transgressions amongst us that would void our good deeds. What's Sa'ad saying? He's saying, Look, we're gonna be okay if our hearts are okay. If we are people of purity, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give us victory because we deserve victory. If we're not, we're going to suffer defeat. Salman radiallahu anhu responds to Sa'ad radiallahu anhu. And he said, Inna al-Islam jadeedun dhullilat lahum wallahi al-buhur kama dhullilat lahum al-bar. Ama walladhi nafsu Salman biyadi la yakhrujunna minhu afwajan kama dakhaluhu afwajan. Salman radiallahu anhu says, Allah will make the oceans the water subservient to them, the same way that Allah has made the land subservient to them, if they are indeed, as you say, O Sa'ad, and he says, we will enter into that river and come out of it as we are, if we are as you said. So what do they do? Sa'ad, Salman, and the Muslim army go into the river. 30,000 of them enter into the river and come out of the river and the Persian Empire is on the other side watching this, thinking like, you know, we won, they can't come here, we're good here. And they start to see the Muslims come into the river and then start to rise out 
And they didn't even lose a pot or a pan <laughs> or a single shield or weapon. And so they start to scream, shayateen, shayateen, devils, devils, and they run away. And they come out and they enter. And this is where they arrive now at the city of Al-Mada'an, which is the last bastion of Kisra and Persia, which is where the greatest palace in the world existed at the time. It's about 15 miles south of Baghdad, and they come to the palace of Kisra. Anas ibn Malik anhu describes this moment where they arrive outside of the palace of Kisra. And he said that the Muslims all turned to Salman and they said, what do we do? I mean, this is your area, this is your territory, you know this place, these are your people, what do we do? Salman anhu says, give me a chance to call them to Islam. Let me go talk to them. So Anas anhu says, Salman anhu gets off of the horse and he walks up to them and they look at him so confused. Like, what is it with these Muslims? They show up with Ubadat ibn Samit in Egypt, right? What is a black man doing leading you? And then they show up with Salman and what is a Persian man doing? This is confusing to them. Who are these people? So the Persians are looking at Salman and they're thinking, what? Oh, he's probably a sellout. You know, like he's probably a Amir, like a spy, a Persian spy that penetrated the other army. Salman comes up and he says to them, Innama ana rajlun minkum. He said, by the way, I am one of you. Farisiyun, I am a Persian like you. And then Salman points to the Sahaba and he said, Tarawna al-Araba yuti'unani. You see all these Arabs? They follow me. I'm not some uh, little cheap spy that was picked off. I am their leader. And he says, فَإِنْ أَسْلَمْتُمْ فَلَكُمْ مِثْلُ الَّذِي لَنَا وَعَلَيْكُمْ مِثْلُ الَّذِي عَلَيْنَا If you embrace Islam, you'll have the same honor that I have and you will have the same responsibilities that I have. وَإِنْ أَبَيْتُمْ إِلَّا دِينَكُمْ And if you turn back and you accept only your way, تَرَكْنَاكُمْ عَلَيْهِ We will leave you to it. You will pay the jizya and you'll live with your rights. And then Anas said he started to talk to them in Persian and he said to them, وَأَنْتُمْ غَيْرُ مَحْمُودِينَ Don't take that option because it's not the best for you. You won't be praiseworthy people. Like I'm telling you out of love for you, we're not going to come kill you and massacre you and you're innocent and things of that sort, but I'm telling you, embrace Islam and you'll have the same honor that I have. And if you don't, we'll leave you to it. So they spent a few days doing so and they did not uh, respond to the call. And then finally, Bayt Kisra was conquered and Salman anhu enters in and the Sahaba enter in. And you remember what the Prophet told Suraqa ibn Malik in the Hijrah? When the Prophet was on the run and he got caught by Suraqa, Suraqa was catching the fugitive, the Prophet and the Prophet said, How will it be, O Suraqa? You're going to be carrying the heavy gold bracelets of Kisra in your hands one day. That's when the Prophet is running away with a bounty on his head. And then the light of Islam reaching Mada'in, the palace of Persia, was when the Prophet was in the trench and Salman was with the Prophet and the Prophet made dua that Salman would be there when that happened. And here they are, and they enter into Mada'an, the palace of Kisra, the palace of the Persian Empire. Mada'an was named, renamed, some years later, after Salman al-Farisi radiallahu anhu. So it became Medina to Salman, <laughs> the city of Salman. Umar radiallahu anhu, it's only poetic and it's only right. Umar appointed Salman radiallahu anhu, the governor of the seat of the Persian Empire. 
And Umar anhu commissioned him to that lofty palace. Salman anhu did not want that whole palace. Salman took a room all the way in the front and he completely rejected the luxury that existed at the time. And Umar anhu commissioned him to govern and he gave him a salary of 5,000 dirhams a month. Salman would distribute it in charity. And this is how Salman lives the rest of his life out. Salman who chooses, instead of going back to the palace of Persia and living as a king, Salman who chooses to plant date palms around him and tend to the trees and sell dates in the marketplace like everyone else. And he does da'wah to people. You know why? Because the Muslims did not force the Zoroastrians to convert. Hundreds of years and Zoroastrianism was still the, main, the major religion. They didn't burn down their temples. They didn't force them to convert. So Salman anhu took the most simple job of picking dates from the trees and selling them to the people and doing da'wah to his people. The Persian Muslim ruler doing da'wah to the Persian Zoroastrians who lived under the most pompous empire that the world had seen at that time. I know I have to end, subhanAllah, so I just want to end with two things. One of them is Salman anhu receiving a letter from Abu Darda anhu. Remember his brother in Medina? Where is Abu Darda now? Abu Darda is in Jerusalem. He's in Al-Quds. And we're going to talk about him next week. Salman anhu is in Persia. And Abu Darda sends him a letter and he says to him, Assalamu alayka ya akhi, peace be on to you, my beloved brother. Halumma ila al-ard al-muqaddasa. Come on to the holy land. Let's live out the rest of these years together. SubhanAllah, how beautiful. We're retired now. <laughs> We're in our 80s, we've done enough, let's live out the rest of our days in this beautiful place in Jerusalem. And Salman anhu sends back a letter to Abu Darda anhu. Wa alayka salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh ya akhi. Peace be on to you my brother. Inna al-arda la tuqaddisu ahada. The land does not make anyone holy. Wa inna ma yuqaddisu al-insana amalu. But the only thing that makes a man holy is his deeds. That's the last letter that Salman anhu wrote back to his brother who he would correspond with. Sa'ad anhu visited Salman anhu when he was dying in Persia. And as he was visiting him, he found Salman anhu crying. So he gave salam to him and he said, Ma yubkike ya akhi, what is it that's causing you to cry, O oh my brother? Don't you remember all of the righteous moments? What a history you have. Like imagine if Salman wrote an autobiography. What a history you have with the Prophet and with the companions. What good you have done. Salman says, Innahu wallahi ya Sa'ad. He said, I swear to you, O Sa'ad, ma yubkini wahidatun min ithnayn. I'm not crying over two things that people typically cry about when they die. He said, I'm not crying because I'm going to miss this world or because I hate to meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Sa'ad said, So what's causing you to cry? You're in your 80s, you've lived a full life. He said, said, What I'm crying about is I'm remembering that my beloved one, the Prophet took an oath with me. What did he say to you? He said, the Prophet said, let what you take from this world be like the provision of a traveler. Don't 
let this world spoil you. Don't let the luxury of this world spoil you. You're going to have palaces come back to you and the world present itself to you. Don't be spoiled by this dunya. And Salman says, I'm afraid that maybe we didn't live up to that. So I'm remembering a promise that the Prophet took from me and I'm afraid we didn't do that. Salman passed away in the heart of the Persian Empire where he left for the sake of Allah. This time, as a leader, as a ruler, as a scholar, as one of the most beloved companions. And they said that in the house of Salman, all he had was a blanket, cooking utensils, and 20 dirhams. He died before the fitna broke out. Uh, so he didn't get to see the division amongst the companions. He was spared from that. But subhanAllah, it is beautiful that when you think about Qadr, when you think about the divine decree, you hear about the story of Salman and you feel pain at his struggle. Yesterday, it's like, oh my God, like it's like watching a bad movie, right? Like every, every time you think things are going right, something goes wrong, right? All the struggle, 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 struggle. If Salman never left the Persian Empire for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what would have happened to him? Well, the Romans defeated the Persians the same year that Badr happened. So Salman anhu was safe in Medina, just met the Prophet and embraced Islam. And the empire that was so arrogant and that could never be defeated in this war was defeated by the Roman Empire. And the Romans massacred many people and burned down many of those homes. Allah knows if they burned down the home of his father, the home that he grew up in. What would have happened to him? SubhanAllah. What would have been his fate? He would have been a nobody, an enemy combatant, maybe fought against the Muslims, maybe fought against the Romans. Allah knows best what would have happened to him. Look what Allah did for him. And SubhanAllah, when you talk about the Qadr of Allah, dear brothers and sisters, even one Salman who was in slavery, it's as if Allah was protecting him from the Roman and Persian rivalry because the Roman and Persian rivalry became the most bitter at the time when the Prophet received his message. That's when some of the heavy penetrations started to happen from territory to territory. And when the Romans took a territory, they massacred all of the Persians. And when the Persians took a territory, they massacred all of the Romans. So even then, it's as if Allah took the man off the map. So he could wait and be protected until the Prophet comes to Al-Madina. And Salman anhu was never bitter about that. And so I end with the du'a of Salman anhu, one of the most beautiful narrations. He said, Rasulullah taught me. He said to me, Ya Salman, Inna Allaha hayiyun kareemun. O Salman, Allah is shy and generous. Yastahi idha rafa'a rajuli ilayhi yadayhi an yaruddahuma safran khaibatayn. Allah is too shy that when a man raises his hands up to him, to let those hands come back rejected and empty. Allah was answering every one of your du'as, O Salman. Every single one of those du'as, Allah's timing was perfect. Allah's answer was perfect. You did not make a single journey in your life except for a purpose that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had shown you later on in your life. And we as an ummah benefited from that rich history of Salman radiallahu ta'ala anhu. May Allah be pleased with him, may Allah be pleased with the companions, and may Allah send his peace and blessings upon the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and his family and companions, and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to be amongst those that dedicate themselves to the truth, that are always upon guidance and protect us from going astray. Allahumma ameen. 
وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى اله وصحبه اجمعين والسلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته